You know, I'm, I am, I don't know about you, but I have great knowledge of people. As I looked over this audience, I saw a few who needed a few gems of wisdom. And I began to plan what I was going to say, and all of a sudden my mind went totally blank. Because I had forgotten that I prayed and I asked God to help me to help at least one person because I always get good results all the time. I uh, must thank the committee for the beautiful uh, fruit basket and the beautiful welcoming committee. I, I think she has been so nervous this whole time waiting for me to get here. And when I finally called her today and said, I'm in Little Rock, she took a deep breath and said, thank God it's over. <laughs> you probably won't see her volunteering for this job next year. <laughs> I bring you greetings from the Cairo group Thomas, uh, outside of Thomasville, Georgia. It's about uh, 12 miles outside of Thomasville, some of the best AA in the world. And I must tell you that my sponsor said to me, I have heard a couple of your tapes recently and you have not said anything about your sobriety date. My sobriety date is October 19, 1975, for which I'm truly grateful to this fellowship. <laughs> it's the first time I've been to uh, Arkansas. My daughter and I drove from Georgia here, and it was a good trip. I told her tonight as we sat, I have a 13-year-old. This is my sober child. The others... <laughs> The other three knew what not to do. <laughs> this one isn't sure. She keeps trying me, you know. And I'm practicing these new parenting skills, and it's driving me crazy. <laughs> so I told her tonight, as we sat in the room, I said, now, you know, this used to be real nice for me. I'd go off, and I'd talk, and I'd get treated real nice. And when I go home, I feel all refurbished and ready to go. And I said, I've been bringing you these last couple of times. If it don't change, you ain't coming back no more. <laughs> I'm truly grateful for this child. This is the only child in my life. I have three other children. One, I have a 22. I have a daughter, 26, and a daughter, 32. And this child uh, has really uh, kept me on my P's and T's. And this is the one child that... Uh, that was conceived totally. I think this is one of the blessings that I got from God as a result of being sober. It was that I uh, was able to make all my doctor's visits and, and uh, do all the things that I should as a mother. And uh, I'm grateful for that because that's one of the opportunities I was given again. And I think this is one of the merits that I've earned. And um, I don't have too many material things, quote, that I can say that uh, has uh, happened in my life, but this I'm truly grateful for. And in spite of it all, Carla Miles, I love you dearly, and I wouldn't give you up for nothing. Uh, my daughter is here with me tonight, and uh, she's special, and, and I love her dearly, and we're having a difficult time, but who isn't? I wanted to uh, tell you something great, and, and uh, when I leave, you always remember me and all that stuff, but I don't think I can tonight. I, I think I've been humble in some way. I need to get on with this thing and go on and do what God's all about because without him I'm nothing. My story is not a beautiful story. I wish I could stand up here and tell you that it's going to, oh, if you've heard a tape of mine, it's going to come. And then if it was beautiful, I wouldn't even be up here, would I? 
sometimes when I'm talking, some of the garbage slips out, you know, and you walk in in your nice new clothes, and this isn't so new, I didn't get a new thing. And you walk in and, and uh, you want to, and then you say something and you say, oh, God, I hadn't thought about that in 20 years. And it's time for it to come out because there's one person out there that it needed to come out for. And so when I do make these things and they come out, and when they come up, they come out. <laughs> and uh, the one thing that I wanted to share with some of you tonight, so we may have some families here or whatever, but uh, don't be embarrassed for me. Uh, don't feel sorry. Everything that happened to me happened to me so I could be here today. And if it had not happened in the sequence it happened, I would not be here tonight. I do not strive to change what has happened. Without it, I would have never met you. And this is one of the greatest blessings I have is this fellowship. And I think it is probably the greatest blessing because without this fellowship, I would be dead and I know it. And you know that too when I finish. <laughs> if I start running my mouth and I'm going over time, somebody please go. Because next to uh, being a nurse, my calling is being a minister. <laughs> <laughs> Something happens. I start hitting on the podium and, and I get carried away. I, so you might do like Carita and I get my feelings get hurt, but it's all right. I'll deal with that later. I was born in uh, Glen County, Georgia, out in the country. Uh, I'm one of two children. My brother is uh, 63. He, uh, we have no other sisters and brothers. My brother is, we have different fathers, but my brother, and I'm not saying has a problem with drinking. He has been sober through the grace of God in this fellowship for about five years, and, and you know, it's never too late to get sober. He's enjoying it. We talk, In fact, I talked to him just two minutes before I walked down here and told him I made it to Little Rock all right, and I was okay, and and we talk now. We talk because of our sobriety. We used to fight and curse each other. And we don't do that anymore. We talk at least two times a week on the phone. He loves me dearly, and I know that, and I love him also. Uh, my mother uh, loved me so much when I was born until I was just so special to her. And she worked as a domestic in, in uh, Brunswick, Georgia, and later she became a cook at the hospital there. Uh, I can't stand here today and tell you that I was neglected as a child. I can't stand here to tell you that I was hungry as a child. I don't, I've never known that before. I, hunger. I never knew what neglect was. My mother was always there being supportive. I can't offer you that. I can tell you that this disease is rampant in my life. Uh, I do remember that sometimes as a young child they would tell me about my aunt who died and she was making strange noises when she, she went into a seizure and she died. And I guess that was what you call withdrawal and she had convulsions and died and she was 26 years old and everybody said she was I was just like her so you know when I did start drinking I said well when I get 26 I'm not going to drink like Aunt Geneva did because I'm going to stop when I get 26 and when I got 26 I was really into the throngs of my disease and there was no turning back and so I couldn't do the thing that I had committed to myself firstly when I heard about drinking as a child, I didn't grow up in a drinking household. My mother, maybe every now and then, had a social thing where the club had a 
few beers or something. And I can remember one time taking a bottle of beer under the table, filling it up with water, and acting like I was at the club meeting. And that night I woke up and I had a dampness under me. I'd had too much beer, obviously, but it was water. And I should have known then I was headed for trouble <laughs> because this began to happen quite frequently later on in my adult years. Of course, none of you have ever had any occasions like that. But anyway, uh, when I, I uh, as a child, my mother never, I never remember her getting drunk. I remember her talking about my father and saying that my father uh, did drink. And that was the reason that they weren't together, because he drank. And I do remember trying to make friends with him at the age of 23. And one thing we did was we got drunk and we fought and we never got high. He died as a direct result of his illness. I can almost go down the line and give you the list of people who in my family uh, died as a direct result of this illness. I do believe it is a generic thing, I, genetic. I think it travels through the deed that. I believe that sometimes it skips generations and sometimes it don't. But you know, this is my own opinion. And I'm grateful for this fellowship giving me the right to state what I feel and how I feel inside about this insidious illness. I, uh, I, I don't ever, wish that I wasn't an alcoholic. So many beautiful things have happened, and I know they happen as a direct result of my disease. I don't know what I would have done if I was just an earth person and didn't have these guidelines. And I feel sorry for the people who don't. And sometimes I almost break traditions trying to give them away. I know a way you can live, you know, and, and, and you have some guidelines to follow and you won't be so when I was coming up, I knew that I didn't want to drink because I knew my father drank and my mom said he was a bad drunk and I didn't want to be like him. And I can remember that at, at a young age, I was a sickly child and mama used to fix tardies. Some of you don't know anything about that. Rock. You put the shine on the rock candy and put it in the back of the refrigerator on raisins, set the quart jar in the back of the refrigerator back there and it stays back there until somebody gets sick. And when you get sick, you heat it up put hot water in it, put a little sugar in it, and then you give it to the child or whoever's sick. And I became a very sickly child at an early age. <laughs> I can remember right now, very vividly, drinking that and remember what it tastes like and, and the taste buds still mount loads of saliva. You know. And I didn't even know what was going on, but I remember, I can remember, and I remember how it felt going down. It was warm. It went on down and it just eased. You just drifted off into a night, and that's the way it was. <laughs> Doesn't take much to remake it come back, does it? But anyway, when I uh, took my first drink on my own, I was uh, like um, about 12 or 13 years old. I was babysitting, and uh, I was at this friend of mine's house, and I went all through the uh, house looking for a drink. And it was not to get drunk. It was not to black out. It was simply I wanted a drink. And there was plenty of things there for a babysitter. Soda, iced tea, whatever you could have wanted was there. And I looked back in the back of the refrigerator and there was some cooking sherry. And I poured it in a glass and I took my first drink on my, on my first, very first drink on my own. I blacked out and I passed out. I did not know that I had done this until I got to the fellowship. And you told and this is what happened. When they got home that night, I was asleep on the sofa. And I know I hadn't done anything wrong. Nobody mentioned anything. Nobody said anything to me about it. So I never said anything about it until I got here. 
they tell me the difference in my taking my first drink and those people who don't have problems is that I will remember mine to my life and those people who don't have problems. Something happened in my brain that night that triggered what was going on with me. If somebody had come along then and said, Caritha, you're going to be one of the biggest drunks that Brunswick, Georgia has ever produced, I would have called them a big liar because I had other plans for my life. My next drink was not until I was 16 years old, and it was my senior prom night, and I had a beautiful gown on. I'll never forget it. It was light blue, and I had light blue spike pumps on, and I had a cummerbund pleated, and I was very thin at that time. If you can look be inside the fat here. And I was very thin, and I had to split up the side and the sash streaming down, and I thought I was extremely beautiful. And I went to this prom, and I did not intend to get drunk. I intended to taste a little bit with everybody and have a good time. You see, at that time, I already knew that I had a three-year scholarship to Grady Nursing School, and this was in 1958. And very, very few people got into Grady Nursing School. It was one of the most outstanding schools in the United States at that time. And I had gotten accepted. I had gone up taking my entry exams, and I had gotten accepted. And I went to my senior prom, and I was simply celebrating and I went around to the table and I took a little sip with a few people because Caritha Powell did not get drunk. I was not that kind of person. I grew up in the church. I was a scholar in school. I was involved in sports. I attended all of the, I was oh, just, just you name it and I'll claim it, actively involved. I was an honor graduate. There was no way that I was going to ever be a drunk. That night, I did exactly what I did when I was 12 or 13 years old. I drank, I blacked out, and apparently I passed out. And they were planning on doing some things. If you've ever been in our town, we have some dunes over on Jekyll Island, and they were planning on doing things in the dunes that night. And I caused them to not be able to do them because I was over there, and I had gotten a new thing to the uh, blacking out and passing out. I began to throw up. And I remember that I hit my head on the steering wheel because I was laying on my stomach and I was throwing up. Now, this also changed. I don't know about you, but this is a progressive illness in my life. And everything that I ever did progressed, and this progressed. You know, first I threw up, then I vomited. When I came, and then I regurgitated. When I got to y'all, I was literally puking. <laughs> now, maybe some of you don't know what puking is all about, but... If you haven't done it, maybe I can describe it so if it happens. <laughs> I don't ever want to forget that. It's when your stomach turns inside out, your nose runs. You don't know which port to put on the porcelain palm first. You don't know whether it should go this way or that way. And you're not sure what's going to come out first. And then you're saying to yourself as you're doing it, if I just had one look. And that's the insanity of this illness. Whenever I finish this, I'll never drink again. I'll never drink again. And that's the, what I was doing when I got here. I don't know about you. Some people I've heard, they, they got a little drunk and they just walked right into the fellowship and handed their hand in and said, <laughs> say, I'm here, I'm ready, and I want to get started now, and, and I don't ever want to drink again. I wasn't like that. When I got here, it was totally different. When I got here, nobody out there wanted Caritha but y'all. 
that little nice girl who used to walk the streets of Brunswick and walk on the other side of these little places on the clubs and joints that stayed open to 3 and 4 o'clock, I began to frequent those same places that I used to walk on the other side of the And when I would walk into those places, I would call myself slumming. But you know, the difference in my being there and those people who stayed there regularly was at least they were being honest as to why they were there. You know, they knew they came in there to get anything they could get. But I was slumming when I walked in, of course. When I uh, got home that night with that beautiful blue gown on and I fell against the linen closet and my mother said to me, Carissa, now that you know what it's about, it's hoping you'll stop. She'd seen the, my father go through this. And I said, oh, I'll never drink like this again, never. And I went sailing off to nursing school because see, I was going to go to nursing school for a while. I went off to nursing school, and on Butler Street we stayed. And when I got there, one of the first things my big sister wanted to do for me, and they assigned us big sisters, and Lord knows they gave me an alcoholic for a big sister. <laughs> and I got there, and old Evelyn said, let's go down on Hunter Street and get some beer. And that was when they sold a pitcher of beer for 50 cents. I'd never seen that before. They didn't have it in small town. So I went over. And we drank the beer, and I did what I usually do. I drank. I blacked out. Some kind of way they got me home because I was passing out on the way. If you had come by the end and said, Caritha, you've got a problem with alcohol, I would have said, you big lie, not Caritha. I've got plans for my life. Very soon after the end, I got to start doing this, and it was, and it was happening so frequently, it started messing with my grades at nursing school. And so, of course, another thing entered the picture, and it was called manipulation. And then I began to try to do things to control other people to keep them off my back because somewhere inside of me I knew something was going on, but I wasn't able then to even say it or realize it. So I began to do another little thing called suicide attempts again. So I got a few pills from my big sisters, and I overdosed. So then they came, and they said, well, we're going to pump you out. They pumped me out, and they said, we're sorry. We're about saving lives here, and you're going to have to go home. And, of course, it wasn't my fault. It was my chemistry teacher who didn't give me a good background in chemistry, and I was feeling My uncle and my mother came to pick me up, and as we rode along the road, and I was telling them all about what happened in school, and they said, well, my mother was crying because she was so proud of me getting the scholarship. So she said, Carita, how could you do this to yourself? What's the matter? And then she said that magic, made that magic uh, inquiry, what did I do wrong? And I began to tell her. <laughs> And as we rode home and we got home, uh, I immediately had to do something. I always wanted to be famous and out of the ordinary. What can I do? So I looked around, and a friend of mine offered to send me to college. I could stay with her family, and then she said, no. Uh, you can go over, and I'll rent an apartment, and you can go to the local college. And, of course, I wasn't uh, Savannah State material. I was like... NYU or something like that. So I said, I don't want to go to that little switch. So I've got to do something unique and different. So I looked around, and out of all the people in our town who had been to the military, there was not a black female. I joined, you know. When I walked down the street, you could see Uncle's hand up saying, I want you, I want you, and he wanted me, you know, how we are about being needed. So I went into and I joined the military and of course I was just 17 and my mother had to sign the papers and she said, oh, I don't want my child to go. You see, I was her only daughter and I was her baby child and she didn't want me to go. 
And I said, please, Mama, I said, I'm not going to be what they usually say that whacks are in the military. And, of course, when I got there and I got into the military and all of this, it wasn't anything that anybody did to me in the military. It was what I did to the United States. One of the first things they introduced me to when I got there was the freedom to drink on my own. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I was about. And I began to try to drink and be a good surgical technician. And there's just no way you can do it. So they decided that maybe I might need to do some little, may kick me out. So I had to go back to my little manipulation. And what I did this time, rather than overdose, is I and I had been drinking, they found me, and of course they gave me a medical discharge and I came home. The interesting part that while I was over there and this happened was, there was a major in the psychiatric unit over there and he was in withdrawal. And I walked by his room because of course they had put me in the psychiatric And I can remember lying in that bed at night and hearing those women who were in postpartum blues moan and groan and beat. And I said to myself, why am I here? And this began to open up a new avenue that I was. When I heard that major crying and saying the bugs were crawling over him, and I said, I'm not like him. I feel so sorry for him. But I forgot that one night I had gone over to the club, and, and I came back, and they put me in a padded cell, and they put me in a straitjacket, and they put me in a room where they flushed the commode and turned and they didn't give me spoons or forks or knives to eat. Restrained. I was 18 years old and I was in Heidelberg, Germany. And I was the night I picked up a white chip to come into this fellowship, I was 36 years old. From that time, I left Heidelberg, Germany, and I came back with an honorable medical discharge and an honorable condition. For those next 18 years, I lived in hell. Today, I don't know what hell is all about. But I do know that if it's anything similar, if somebody had told me that's where I was going, when I caught that plane and came back home, I had no idea. I knew nothing about the disease, the disease concept. I knew nothing about Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew that I liked to drink, and I liked to go out, and I liked to have a... And I knew that when I drank, sometimes I drank too much. And somewhere inside of me, I knew... I drank and things happened that I didn't remember, but I never told anything about anybody about it because they never asked me about it. And when I came to my reality again and I realized nothing bad had happened, I thought, then it was nothing wrong with that. That was a part of it. And I guess tonight I realized that my drinking was so very important to me that I was willing to take the blackouts in order to get the bug. This is an insidious. I came back home and I tried to get an LPN school off. I remember I was working a little while before I got an LPN school. I was working in the hospital and they had me working in central service and I used to at night and I would set up all the supplies for the hospital for the next day. And I went to work that night at 11 o'clock and 12 o'clock the desire to hit, drink hit me harder than anything in the world. And I remember going to my nursing supervisor saying I had to go see about my sick child. At that time I had a daughter. That was a little three-year-old. And one of the thing about that, too, is one of the things that I always said to myself as I grew up was I never wanted to have illegitimate children because I'm an illegitimate child, and I know that's a very painful situation. 
And the very first thing I did when I got the opportunity was have an illness. And I told him I had to go home to see about this child. I never got home. I had to get there before the liquor store closed. And I got me a drink of liquor. And I walked out of the hospital and I left all those supplies that needed to be sterilized. It was before we had the disposable stuff and all the solutions that had to be autoclaved. And I walked. But you know, I don't know about you, but about me, I always was one of those people who would work 16 hours when somebody wouldn't. And I was one of those people that a job never got too dirty because I was a good, good person in the hospital and people enjoyed my work and I was very good at what I did. I have never met anybody in this fellowship who wasn't very good at what they did. This is the end of side one. Please turn your cassette at this time and continue playing. Thank you. Side two, we'll continue in just a moment. And people would say to me, Carita, how can you be this way? Why are you drinking like this? And I would say to them, well, you know, I'm young and I'll grow out of it. And I had forgotten that concept of being 26 and stopping. When my child was born, I can remember stopping drinking when I realized I was pregnant. That was my first child. I remember stopping drinking when I was about three months pregnant, when I realized I was pregnant. And then I kept drinking. And then with the second child, the length of time increased. And one of the things that I always thought was the epitome of low life was a drunk pregnant woman. And I became a drunk pregnant woman. My last child before Carla, my son, 22, I drank the entire pregnancy. And you know, people look at females and they say, how could you do that? If you were any woman at all, you'd stop drinking and take care of your. Sometimes when I'm talking to groups of people who are not involved in this disease, I tell them, I said, you know how it is sometimes when you, when you want to smoke a cigarette, you promise yourself you were going to stop. And you, magnif you multiply that times one million. And you can feel what I felt when the desire to drink came up. There was nothing more important in my life than alcohol. Nothing. The suicidal attempts continued. They changed. First it was the overdosing. Then it was the uh, cutting the wrist. Then it was cutting the throat, cutting the wrist. Then it was self-inflicted bullet wound. In July of 1975, I attempted suicide for the last time, and uh, in the presence of my oldest daughter and my son. And as I fell to the floor, and as the bullet hit, what I was trying to do was prove to somebody how much I was hurting inside. My 32-year-old hurts real bad inside today. She's not able to do anything about her recovery. She lived with a drunk mom all her life. She doesn't understand how it's affected her life, and I've been trying to tell her. But she likes to go to Al-Anon and talk about mom and not about herself. She's having a hard time. You know, this disease affects everybody it comes in contact with. 
One of the things I always think about sometimes is my first marriage, you know. In the first marriage, my husband, I spoke to him the other day, and that's one of the things that this fellowship has given me is the opportunity to speak to him again since I've gotten sober and gotten my life together. And I asked him, I said, when I was very sick, why did you leave me? And he said, well, I didn't know what to do. Those males who stay with us drunk females, I give you halos because that is so unusual. The females tend to stick with the guys, but the men tend to walk away from us and leave us to die alone. You know, there's something about being a drunk woman, but then there's something also being about being a drunk black woman in the South. And you catch hell. You catch hell. And if it was a thing saying, my God, I need to stop drinking and straighten up my life, a black female drunk needs to do something right away. <laughs> I mean, you got enough pain going on already, you know. But I hung in there to the very last, and when I walked in these doors, I didn't come willing. I came kicking and screaming. And when I walked in these doors, I sat in the back of the room. Because I sure didn't want to be with y'all. I had a deep-rooted problem that needed psychological attention. <laughs> and five or six PhDs just would not work even. And here you PRs were going to tell me what to do with my life. So as I went to treatment the very last time, and of course I was in treatment about seven or eight times, you know, when you got a little bit of smarts, you catch hell out there. <laughs> they tell me the, the slower you are, the quicker this thing absorbs. <laughs> if you got any smarts about you at all, boy, you probably caught hell before you got that first white chip. Are you still picking them up? See, I was going to analyze this thing. I can remember even after I picked up my first birthday chip, I said, how in the world I'm going to make it next year without them chips in between? <laughs> I think I'm a little bit different. I need to pick up something to keep me going. I didn't think everybody else did it this way and they made it. You see what I'm saying? That's the kind of person I am. So anyway, when I got, got in, in treatment that last time, the last time I went, the first time I went to treatment, I flew. There were two or three nursing friends who went with me. The last time I went, I thumbed the ride in the van because they wouldn't take me no more. <laughs> when I went the last time, what they did was, at that time, I had lost all the property my mother left me. They wouldn't hire me at the hospital and work anymore. I had gone through LPN school, did my state boards in the blackout, got through LPN school, was working. The hospital didn't want me anymore. Uh, my children were taken from me. They were in foster care, and I had the clothes on my back and two or three dollars in my pocket. And I went to a regional hospital. When I went to the regional hospital, a guy named Frank was taking me over there, and Frank was in the fellowship, and he said, Cretha, now when you get out of treatment this time, I want you to do it there. And I said, okay. And I said that because I needed to get over there to the hospital. I didn't have anywhere to go. And if I had said, well, I ain't going to do that, he may have stopped the van and put me off. <laughs> so we got to Georgia Regional, and over at Georgia Regional that night, believe it or not, the group from my hometown uh, had that first meeting. It was a Wednesday night meeting, and, and they said, you have to go. 
Because, see, somebody had told me about Alcoholics Anonymous before, and I said, well, that's not what I need. I don't need Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I don't know how they work, but I know I don't need that. <laughs> so she said, well, Carita, I saw a lot of people go there, and it worked. I said, it won't work for me. I'm different. And I stayed drunk so long because I was so different. And when I got to that meeting that night, I sat in the back of the room. And a guy got up and he began to talk. It was a Wednesday night. And he talked about driving cross country in a tractor trailer and having a blackout and not remembering going from one coast of the country to the other coast. And it was just like that. Just like that. I blacked out. I don't remember doing things. I know I'm embarrassed the next day, but I don't know why I'm embarrassed. I wind up doing things that I never would have done had I been sober. They said, if anybody tonight can identify with anything they've heard here and you'd like to let us know, you let us know by coming up and picking up a white tip. And I want to tell y'all that with all the hell I'd been through, with all the, oh Lord, the morals were gone down the drain. And I'm sitting back there in those little sleazy jersey pants and a little band long and some thongs on. And this man is up there talking, and I had no plans of identifying. <laughs> Hadn't gotten that bad yet. There was still hope. And I know the only thing I know is I began to walk up front. And I came up here, and I picked up the white chip. And I looked at it. And I said, what could this little stupid thing mean? What could it mean? I'll tell you what it meant. About three years later, I was at a gas station one day, and I was smoking at that time. I've stopped smoking, and I was, and I was at smoking. I had my cigarette case, and I kept my chips in the cigarette case. And I left my cigarette case on top of the gasoline pump. And I took off, and I went down the road. And I was 50 miles down the road before I realized I didn't have my cigarette case with my chips. And you know what I did? I turned around. And I went back and I got my chips. The first meeting I went to, there was a husband and a wife speaking after then. The wife was the alcoholic and the husband was the Al-Anon. And she began to tell what had happened in our life. And I said, there's no way that could have happened. They had a little room back in the back back there. And people kept going back there with these little white styrofoam cups coming back with an, a donut in their hand. I said, how can they drink that liquor and eat those donuts? <laughs> See, I knew that's what y'all did. And if I stayed long enough, you was going to let me go back in that room. And I was going to get some of what you had. And they told me to come on back in the room, and I kept looking, and I didn't smell the liquor, and everybody was smiling and laughing, and I kept sniffing. Where is the liquor? I know it is somewhere in this room, you see. See, I had heard about this old program right away because they had the state convention on Jekyll Island, and I read in the paper about it, and I said, what do those drunks do at a state convention? I said, I bet you Jekyll Island is falling apart over there. They're tearing it apart. And when I went back in that room and I came back and I began to feel something and I began to look in your eyes and I began to see that you truly cared about me. And then you looked at me and you didn't say, Carita, uh, where do you work? Do you have a job? Then you didn't say, how much money do you have? 
uh, we require you to do thus and so in order to become a member of this fellowship. The only thing you said to me was if you have a desire. You didn't say you got to. Because if you had said you got to, I wouldn't have been here. You don't never tell me what I got to do. So you said if you have a desire. So what I did was I kept coming with all these doubts in my head. And then they said, you've got to go to this uh, halfway house over in Waycross. And I said, well, I don't want to do that either. And they said, well, let's try it. I went to this halfway house, and I had about three months without a drink, and I was sitting in a meeting one night. And for the first time in my life, I realized what it felt to truly, truly want to drink. And then I realized why I couldn't last over three months. I was sitting in this meeting, and there was nothing wrong. I wasn't happy. I wasn't sad. I wasn't hungry. I wasn't broke. My children were all right. And then this insatiable desire came over me to get up and go in this strange town and look for a drink of love. And I began to cry. And I said, I can't go. What is wrong with me? I've got my mind made up. I want to stay sober. Why am I sitting here feeling like I need to take a drink? What kind of person are you? They said, well, have a chocolate bar. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, I ate that chocolate bar looking at you like you were crazy. And after a while, things begin to change. And I said, you know, I might better listen to these people, you see. And then I remember sitting in these meetings, and it was time to pick up my chips, you know, and doing the, these months. And, and our old guy named, um, uh, what was it, Glenn. And Glenn had a gray flat top, and Glenn couldn't keep his hands still. He said, y'all, let's go to a meeting tonight. And I'm sitting up in that halfway house. I don't want to go to no meeting, Glenn. Yep, we're going over here to Jacob. They're having a great big birthday party, and they're going to be doing this, and they're going to be doing the other. See, I had been going a long time, and I didn't see no black people. (laughs) And I knew this thing didn't work for me, and I was just going to wait till the right time and show them it did not work. So, Glenn, they knew about this. They, They knew me better than I knew myself, and you know about that. So they took me to this meeting, and I got over there, and there was this guy picking up a three year chip. A tall, elegant black man, and he was so... (laughs) And his little girls had practiced one day at a time. And they sang that thing in harmony. And chills still come over me now. And I said, oh, God, it does work. And he saw me, he saw I was feeling isolated, and he said, look in these people's eyes. Now, I came from a little small town, and they used to pick me up. They'd take me to meetings. I got a job. I remember I didn't get an influential job (laughs) this time. I washed cars for the staff at the treatment center. And I bought cigarettes, and I went to meetings. And then one day, God opened the door for me to get a job. 
And I began to call my sponsor and ask for things. And I remember one night I called her about 11.30 at night. She said, Caritha, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Brunswick. She said, what are you doing going to Brunswick at 11.30 at night? I said, I got some important business to take care of. She was all the way out on Airport Road, which was about 10 miles from where I lived. And she said, if you leave, I will literally come over there and kick your butt. And I says, why are you telling me this? She says, you're not going to Brunswick to take care of business. You see, I had by that time moved up enough to get a little car, you know. And I would go by this place on the way to Brunswick when I would go home to visit my kids. And my car would kind of just, you know how to, you get to the drive-in window? And it would just kind of go to the right as you get to the drive-in window on its own. And I had to begin to learn how to, and I kept, and you know, I think that night I had finally decided I was going to let that car go where it wanted to go all along. And she said, if you leave, and I said, what do you mean speaking to me like that? Because you see, by that time, I was about 36 years old, 37 years old, right, in this fellowship. Nobody tells a grown woman what to do with her life. See? I'm grown. I know what needs to go on in my life. Don't come along trying to dictate. Now, just staying sober is good enough, but you don't tell me what to do with my life day in and day out. I mean, this AA is all right, but it don't go for everything, you know. <laughs> And don't be telling me about them cliches. Who wants to hear that? I don't want to hear that stuff every day of my life. What you talking about? Meditation and prayer. Get up in the morning. You got, what you mean when I go to the bathroom and read the 24-hour day book? <laughs> don't tell me what goes on in my life. And then, you know, one thing happened. As I began to do these things that she suggested I do, things began to happen. Things began to happen. And I've stayed sober one day at a time since that day in that treatment center when I unwillingly walked up and picked up that white chip. And I have hurt. I have hurt so bad because I have not had my drug to sedate me in my pain. There have been times when I didn't have a dime and I didn't know where the next one was coming from. But I have discovered in this fellowship that there is nothing in this world worth my sobriety. My worst day sober will never be as bad as my best day drunk. I am sick and tired of being demeaned and looked down on. You see, I'm a good woman. I'm an excellent woman. You know why? Because I've lived through hell and not many women can do that. And you know how I did it? Because I've got a loving God that you introduced me to who carried me before I got here. And when I got here, I discovered that I didn't have to know nothing about God. I didn't have to have no program for him if I would simply open my heart and my ears and my mind. I could make a change. You see? So I changed. And I'm changing every day. And I don't ever want to stop changing because I always, I want to know what Caritha is about, you see. So I have to keep growing and I have to keep doing things. And so what I fellowship, God has opened doors for me. The same identical treatment program that took me many days back and forth to treatment, I became a counselor in. I stayed there sober long enough. God introduced another door, that nurse I always wanted to be. I went back. And when I went back, I took my recovery with me, and I'm not embarrassed about who and what I am, you see. Because there are very few black women in this day. And I want them to know there's an answer. I want them to know that they don't have to live this hard life, you see. And I know that through me working with other people, that it can go on. I went to nursing school. 
at graduation, I was amazed when they said, the outstanding nursing student is. And I said, not me. I didn't even look up. They hunched me in the side and said, Carita, they're talking to you. And I walked up. This drunk walked up and accepted the award. This drunk, when they decided to appoint a director of nursing at a psychiatric facility, this drunk. Why? Because of you. Because you gave me 12 guidelines to follow. And you said, here it is. And my God opens doors for me every morning I wake up. He still today loves me unconditionally. Has loved me unconditionally from the beginning to the end. When I open my eyes in the morning, he does not make any kind of demands on me. He said, Carita, here's the day. Take it and do whatever you choose to with it. And because I owe him so much, I owe him my life. And I'm in debt and I can never repay him. Thank you so much for introducing me to God. Thank you so much for loving me when nobody else would. And if I can ever do anything for any of you, I don't care what time of night it is, call me. If nobody said they love you today, I do. I love you simply because you're you. And y'all, guess what? My children love me. My friends love me. I can walk down the street in that same town when I was a drunk falling down on my hands and knees and people respect me now. And you gave me this. You gave it to me. Thank you so much.